Good morning, brothers and sisters. My name is Catherine. I'm excited to share the scripture reading with you this morning. Please open your Bibles along with me to 1 Corinthians 13. And please read along too. So again, that's 1 Corinthians 13. And please read aloud with me. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking. It is not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Evanston Bible Fellowship. I'm sure that you all look great this morning and that definitely none of you are still in your pajamas right now. But, but even if you are, you know, I'm, I'm still so glad that you're participating in our virtual service this week. If you don't know me, my name is Danny Russell and I serve as the Director of Ministries and Operations here at Evanston Bible Fellowship. As we enter into the month of August and as the pandemic restrictions continue, I think that we could all use a little more encouragement in our lives. So I just want to say that I am thankful for all of you. Thank you for the time and energy that you put towards being a part of our church. Even the fact that you're taking the time right now this morning out of your week to watch this video for the service is an encouragement to me. It is such a blessing to be a part of this church family. And this morning, I am excited to be able to preach God's word as we begin a new series. So, so let's dive in. Uh, in his book, The Rule of Love, which I conveniently brought right here, Jonathan Lehman explores the idea of what the Bible means when it says that God is love. He talks about how in our world, in our culture, and, and oftentimes in our own lives, we hear that statement, God is love, 
and then take whatever idea we have of what love means and we impose it onto God. Lehman writes, instead of going before the creator of the universe and saying, tell us what you are like and how you define love, we start with our own views of love and deify them. We start with our own views of love and deify them. Essentially, Lehman is saying that instead of simply letting God set the standard for what love is, we come up with our own standard and expect God to fulfill it. Lehman goes on to write, When the Bible says God is love, it's not saying that there is this thing out there called love and that God measures up to it. There is no dictionary definition of love hovering outside the universe, independent of God, so that God answers to it. Rather, God in himself provides the definition, the reality of what love is. Love is not an abstract concept, but a personal quality of God. Love is not an abstract concept, but a personal quality of God. This is an exceedingly important distinction to make for Christians. Our lives are consumed with messages about love. Songs, TV shows, social media, news outlets, co-workers, families, professors, classmates, church, the list could go on and on. Everyone agrees that love is a good thing, but we are constantly bombarded with different ideas about what it actually is and, and how it should affect our lives. What should we, the church, make out of all of this talk about love? Well, we need to go to the creator of the universe and say, tell us what you are like and how you define love. And during the month of August, we're going to do just that. Our new sermon series is titled, Love, What It Is, How It Shapes Us, and the Heart of Christ. It's going to be a five-week series through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We posted a, a schedule actually on Realm if you're interested in taking a look at that. But our goal for this series is to look at one of the foundational passages on love in Scripture and dig into three big aspects of love. What it is, how it shapes us, and the heart of Christ. Let me explain that really quickly. So as we look at 1 Corinthians 13, we want to get a definition of love. To understand what it is according to God's word. To get a look at it and know it inside and out. And yet we don't simply want to attain greater intellectual insight, as important as that is, into the concept of love. We want to become loving people. We want to know how love influences us, how it affects our interactions with others, how it changes our thoughts, our words, and actions. All of these things out of an overflow of our love for Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we want to explore the heart of Christ. 
it would be easy to read this passage and to preach this passage and, and to walk away with a list of moral do's and don'ts. Do this and, and don't do that and voila, you're loving. But we see a paradigm shift in our understanding of this passage when we realize that it doesn't only outline how we should deal with others. It is also a perfect reflection for how Christ deals with us. Love, what it is, how it shapes us, and the heart of Christ. Before we dive into the passage for this morning, I want to give two quick caveats that will cover the entire series. So please just just keep these things in the back of your mind as we go from week to week in the series. The first is that this series is not meant to be an exhaustive look at love, but rather an expository one. What I mean by that is we're not going to look at every single thing that the Bible has to say about love, but rather we want to take this one chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and ask what God wants to say to his people from his word in this chapter. The second caveat is that a common temptation when listening to any sermon, but I think particularly when it comes to this series, will be to point the finger at everyone else who needs to hear these words, who needs to take these words to heart. I want to challenge you up front throughout the entire series to resist this temptation. Instead, allow God's word to to sharpen your own heart, to convict your own heart, and to nourish your own heart. With those caveats being said, would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we praise you that you are a loving God. Love is a part of who you are. You have existed in loving fellowship in the Trinity for eternity. And we confess, Lord, that we often take your design of love and and we contort it and, and twist it to fit our own wants and desires. We confess that we love you and we love others imperfectly. As we open your word this morning, we pray that you would reveal a deeper understanding of your love so that we, we would know how important it is to everything we do. Speak to us through your spirit and, and give me strength to, to boldly proclaim your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, since we're jumping right into the middle of the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, before we get to our specific passage today, I just want to set some context for the book and, and for the place of Corinth. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, and it's a church that he helped plant. Uh, As you study the history of Corinth, you begin to see some interesting similarities to our modern-day context. Corinth was largely made up of people who had relocated to the city to find a new beginning. There was a large diversity of people who had traveled from all over because of the opportunities promised there. The people in the city, they didn't establish themselves by nobility or by family lineage, but rather, they moved up the social ladder through their wealth and ability. 
Corinth attracted many gifted, talented, and smart people. It was a center for sports and entertainment. Pastor Stephen Um helpfully summarizes the Corinthian people and culture when he says, The ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. The merchant who made his gain by all and every means. The man of pleasure surrendering himself to every lust. The athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength. These are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires. The ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. Of course, as with any biblical text, there are still interpretive questions that that we must ask between first century Corinth and, and today, but in many of these themes, we find a familiar reality. And in the middle of this culture and this city, there was a church trying to figure out what it meant to follow Christ. And not always doing it so well. In the book of 1 Corinthians as a whole, if you were to read through it, you you see some of the struggles that the church had. There were divisions in the church as factions developed that resulted in quarreling, jealousy, and strife among the body. There were compromises being made with the culture. And just as the city prided itself on individualism and upward mobility, so it was in the church as well that though they were a group of very gifted followers of Christ, the gifts were often flaunted or they were pursued with disregard for the body as a whole. And this last point is explored starting in chapter 12, which is right before the text that we're going to study this month. Chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul begins to teach on spiritual gifts. Paul uses the metaphor of the body to show that believers are a part of something bigger than themselves. Each person, an individual member that makes up one body. Some eyes, some hands, some ears, all members of one body. The Holy Spirit gives each believer spiritual gifts, Paul says in chapter 12, but these gifts are not meant for purely individual pursuits, but rather they are given for the building up of the church. We are not simply many individual members existing separately. We are also one body as a church. In this chapter, though, in chapter 12, we also see the self-sacrificing nature of the church, that the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable that we are called to bestow even greater honor to those we may view as less honorable. That the church should care for one another, suffer together, and rejoice together. Because though we are one body, it's not a uniform body. It's composed of many different members, each one essential to the whole. One body with many members. And chapter 12 ends with a perfect lead-in to chapter 13. And I will show you 
a still more excellent way. Paul encourages the Corinthians to pursue spiritual gifts and to use them for the body, but the gifts aren't the ultimate end. There is a more excellent way. Today we'll be covering verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13. If you're not turned there in your Bibles already, I, I invite you to follow along with your Bibles open in front of you. It's in these first three verses that we see the importance of love. That love gives ultimate significance to everything that we do. Love gives ultimate significance to everything that we do. This is the importance of love. We see this in three points in the passage. Without love, we achieve nothing, we are nothing, and we gain nothing. We're going to quickly move through each of these points and then we're going to reflect on what all of this means. Without love, we achieve nothing, we are nothing, and we gain nothing. Let's look again at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Without love, we achieve nothing. In each of these first three verses, Paul begins the sentence by referring to specific spiritual gifts that he had just referenced and discussed in chapter 12. And first, Paul mentions speaking, whether in the tongues of men or in the tongues of angels, without love is nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It achieves nothing. I want to be clear that the gifts in, in each of these three verses are not presented in opposition of love, but rather they are incomplete without love. Paul is very clear throughout chapter 12 that gifts are good and that as believers we should pursue a greater understanding and practice our gifts within the context of the local church. The gifts themselves are good, but they are not everything. They are incomplete without love. And we don't have the, the time to discuss the nuance of speaking in tongues as a spiritual gift, but regardless of your opinion on it, Paul presents it as a good gift in the right context. In the next chapter, Paul thanks God that he speaks in tongues more than any of the Corinthians. And yet, we still see the utter importance of love. Without love, speaking in tongues is like trying to talk next to a passing train. It achieves nothing. Let's move to verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Without love, we are nothing. Prophecy, understanding mysteries, all knowledge, all faith, all of these things give us no value or worth apart from the presence of love. In this verse, Paul might be referencing Matthew 17, 20, where Jesus says, For truly I say to you, 
If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Is Paul contradicting Jesus? Of course not. But rather, he's making it clear to the Corinthians and making it clear to us that we may want to pursue gifts that are good in the Bible. We may want to have a prophetic voice in our culture and in our church. We may have an insatiable appetite for knowledge. And we may even seek great faith. And yet, if we do not have love, we are nothing. Finally, look at verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Without love, we gain nothing. Here Paul could be citing one of Jesus' teachings to the rich man in, in Matthew 19.21. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. If you give away all you have, but you don't have love, you gain nothing. Paul also seems to reference Daniel chapter 3, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, while in exile in Babylon, were sent into a fiery furnace because they refused to worship anyone besides the one true God. Yet they emerged from the furnace unscathed because the Lord heard their prayer and delivered them. But if you deliver up your body to be burned and don't have love, you gain nothing. Again, Paul is not saying that these stories, these stories and these teachings are meaningless. What he is highlighting is how important love is to anything that we do. We can seek to do great things for the kingdom of God, but if we lack love, there is no gain to be had. Without love, we achieve nothing, we are nothing, and we gain nothing. In these first three verses, we see the surpassing importance of love. That love gives ultimate significance to everything we do. Now, given the context of, of chapter 12 leading into chapter 13, the, the love that Paul seems to be addressing here is specific to the church. Though this chapter is often quoted at weddings and it's read as this magnum opus of romance, it's specifically addressed to and intended for the church. Now, that's not to say that we should only love believers in the church. We should, we should certainly seek this kind of love with our unbelieving friends, co-workers, family, classmates. However, in the Corinthian church, there was a particular need for the believers to receive this exhortation. And I, I believe if you look around our country, our city, even in our own church, the church still needs to hear these same words over and over again. The current pandemic is only highlighting our dire need for the church to be shaped by a love for each other that transcends politics, 
a love that allows for difference of conscience and a love that acknowledges that we might not always be right. In order to be one body with many members, we must have love for each other. Let me say that again. In order to be one body with many members, we must have love for each other. With that in mind, we can apply this passage in two directions. First, do you lack love for individual members of the body? Maybe you love the church as a whole. You, you serve, you consistently attend Sunday services, and, and you know lots about doctrine and scripture. Well, if you do all of those things, but neglect to love the individual members who make up the body of Christ, you will achieve nothing and gain nothing. Are there individual members of the body for whom you lack love? The second way that we can apply this is by asking the question, do you lack love for the body as a whole? Maybe you're incredibly gifted. You can sing, you can teach, maybe you have expertise even in a a field that many others don't have, yet you keep your gifts to yourself. You don't serve sacrificially, you don't pursue exercising your gifts in the context of the church, or you don't connect in community with others. If you lack love for the church body, you will achieve nothing and gain nothing. Do you lack love for the body as a whole? You see, we can err by lacking love for the individual members that make up the church. And we can err by lacking love for the body. We must view and love the church as one body with many members. Now, even as I ask those questions, I I acknowledge that at this point in the series, love sounds a bit subjective and ambiguous. Can we just say anything is love? Or how should we evaluate what is truly loving. Well, this is what we're going to dig into over the next three weeks. So if you have those questions, I I do hope that you come back next week. But let me just give you two examples that are a mirror image of each other, just to to start things off. Let's use verses four through seven. So peeking ahead a little bit, let's use it as a diagnostic tool of sorts to at least get to the tip of the iceberg for how you can evaluate if something is truly loving. Okay, so two examples. The first one, let's say that there is someone who has sinned against you. And you look at scripture and you prayerfully decide that in order to pursue reconciliation, you need to say something to them. You think you're motivated by love for your brother or your sister, but how can you really know for sure? Well, let's ask a few questions. When you talk to this person, when you finally work up the courage and you talk to them, if they respond to you by pushing back on what you're saying, are you willing to be patient with them? Bearing alongside them on the journey of growth and sanctification. Or when they push back, will you become irritable, insisting on your own way? Or 
will you simply give up on them? Is what you're planning to say to them kind? Or is it going to tear the other person down? Do you hope for genuine reconciliation and repentance with this person? Or do you hope to be proved right? Now, let's take a second example, but let's flip the script on this example. Now, let's say that you're the one that has sinned against someone, and and now you're the recipient of someone confronting you. And and let's let's assume that this other person is sharing in love. How do you know if your response to them is loving? Again, we can ask some questions. Are you able to patiently listen and hear them out? Are you able to assume the best about their intentions? Are you willing to admit where you may be wrong or or are you quick to defend yourself? When you leave the conversation, do you begin to resent this person for speaking the truth in love? Does it put you in a a grumpy and irritable, irritable mood? Now, obviously, I'm taking all of the terms from verses 4 through 7 at face value. And we're going to definitely take a closer look at what all of those things mean in the coming weeks. We're going to acknowledge that love has boundaries and limits. And many situations require a nuanced approach that the questions that I just asked are not going to specifically apply to. But hopefully you get a sense of how to check your own heart and Evaluate whether you are being loving towards another person. This idea of loving others in the church, it may seem impossible at times. I know, I know for me, there's been times when it's been so difficult. How can we love broken people? How can we love people who hurt us? Especially when it happens over and over again. How can we love people who don't live up to the standards that we have for them? As we explored in the introduction, if God is love, then this is not only a moral pursuit. It is also a passage that prompts us to reflect on the love of Christ for us. Christ's heart reveals the truest display of love. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. When love feels impossible, take heart, brothers and sisters, and remember the love of Christ for you. That Christ perfectly loves you, a broken person. That Christ perfectly loves you, someone who has sinned directly against him time and time again. That Christ perfectly loves you, someone who constantly fails the standard that he calls us to. And he supremely displayed his love for you on the cross.
where he died in your place, satisfying the penalty for your sins. Not because you achieved anything, not because you are anything, not because you gained anything, but simply because he loved you. This does not excuse us from a pursuit of greater love for others. Instead, may Christ's love compel us to be more like him. Let us pray that Christ's love for us overflows into how we view and treat our brothers and sisters in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our text today was clear. If you do not have love for your brothers and sisters, you can achieve nothing, you are nothing, and you gain nothing. Yet Christ's perfect love reminds us that even when you have nothing to offer him, he died for you to show you his love. As we continue to explore 1 Corinthians 13 this month, I hope and pray that you will not only learn more about what love is, that you will not only be shaped by love in your actions towards others in the church, though I hope both of those things are true, but also I hope that your soul will be nourished as we look into the heart of Christ and discover, maybe for the first time, maybe a much-needed reminder that at the center of Christ's heart is an undeserving love for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the love that you displayed on the cross where you sent your son to die in our place. Thank you for giving us faith and repentance to trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As we read your word in 1 Corinthians 13, Give us eyes to see the importance of love. An idea that, that may seem incredibly obvious, but yet is oh so hard to live out well. Give us a deeper love for one another, a love that can only be explained by the spirits working in our hearts. We need you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.